Thank you for listening to an audio resource from Stanwich Church, located in Greenwich and Stamford, Connecticut. The vision of Stanwich Church is to know Christ and make Him known. The Epistle lesson for today is from Romans chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. This can be found on page 1,120 of your Pew Bible. The act of Adam's disobedience in the Garden of Eden brought sin and death upon the whole human race. But the grace of Christ poured out on the cross offers forgiveness and eternal life to all who believe in him. A reading from Romans chapter 5, beginning with the 18th verse. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. The gospel lesson for today is from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49. This can be found on page 1052 of your pew Bible. The disciples are visited by the risen Christ, who explains how the Old Testament scriptures foretold his death, resurrection, and gospel proclamation of repentance and salvation. A reading from Luke, chapter 24, beginning with the 36th verse. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and see my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnessing these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in this city until you are clothed with power from on high. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Further up and further in. This is the declaration that the great lion Aslan calls out in the final chapter of the seventh book of the Chronicles of Narnia. Further up and further in, 
He's calling it out to all the characters in the story, all the children and even the animals, the talking animals that you've gotten to know throughout the whole story. Further up and further in, and they begin running westward. They begin running towards what would be known as Aslan's country. It's a metaphor. It's an illustration for heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. And Aslan calls out further up and further in, and all the characters begin running westward. And as they run towards Aslan's country, they begin to discover something wonderful in their own bodies. They begin to realize that the closer they get to heaven, as it were, the newer, the more renewed, the more refreshed their bodies become. Anything that was broken in them, anything that was ill in them is going away and they're becoming like strong young people. They walk and they don't grow weary. They run and they don't grow faint. Their youth is renewed like the eagles. It's C.S. Lewis's metaphor for what our new bodies will be like when we get to heaven. And when they finally get to that place, Aslan's country, the last line of the Chronicles of Narnia says something like this. What they realized in that place was that their lives were only just beginning. All of the stories that had taken place up to that point were just the first page on a much longer story yet to be told. Today we conclude our series on the Apostles' Creed And we conclude with the last three lines of the creed. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. The life everlasting. It's the final chapter of our series on the Apostles' Creed. I've had a blast looking at this creed with you all. I'm a little sad that we're concluding it today. If you want to look on the inside of your bulletin, we'll be referring to those last three lines. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. I want to begin with that line in the middle of those three, the resurrection of the body. We'll circle back to the forgiveness of sins part and see how it relates But I want to begin with this line that we say every week as we stand up and declare the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body. What are we talking about when we say that? You might immediately think, well, we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus, of course. Not so on this particular line in the Creed. We referred to Jesus' resurrection earlier in the Creed. When we say he died, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again, that's when we're talking about the resurrection of the body of Christ. So what are we talking about here, the resurrection of the body? We're talking about ours, our bodies, will be resurrected on the last day, according to the Bible. When the new heavens and the new earth are inaugurated, we too will get new bodies, like Christ got a new body in his resurrection. Did you know that, by the way? When we say the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body. You know, you're talking about your own. Now you know. Well, how can we be so sure? Is that really what the Bible says? Indeed it is. In Romans 8, verse 23, it's that part of Romans where he's talking about how the whole creation groans as in pains of labor, eagerly awaiting the new heavens and the new earth. Well, in the 23rd verse of Romans 8, it says this. Listen carefully. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, 
who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Have you noticed that before? We're eagerly awaiting the redemption, the renewal of our bodies. We often think of salvation as redeeming our souls, redeeming our spirit. But actually, our bodies are all entangled in. We are a being created by God, mind, body, and spirit. And we're eagerly awaiting the redemption of our bodies. Yes, Jesus rose from the dead. We know that. We celebrate that. We'll celebrate it a couple weeks from now on Easter morning. But according to the Bible, his resurrected body, his resurrection was just the first fruit. It was just the first one. And we all will have a day like his. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep meaning dying. Then in Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21, it says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform, what? Our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There's a clue in this verse from Philippians about what our resurrected bodies in glory will be like. See what it says here? It will be like his glorious body. And we know a few things about Jesus post-resurrection from the Gospels. We know how his body interacted, how he interacted with the people in the world that he talked with and ate with. So if we want to know what our resurrected bodies will be like, we should look into the Gospels at those scenes. There's one that Katie read for us. I want us to look at it carefully together today, Luke 24. Knowing that our resurrected bodies will be like his. Let's look at this scene from Luke 24 where he interacts with his disciples. Luke 24, verse 36. This is Jesus after he died and was buried and then rose again on the third day. Verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. Jesus himself. It's the very same Jesus, the one who taught and preached and healed and fed and died and was buried. It's the same Jesus. So it's going to be us. When we get a new body in the new heavens and the new earth, it'll be you. It won't be a replacement you. It's really you. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Now, when I ask people what they think it's going to be like for us in heaven, this is often what we imagine. We, we imagine something only spiritual. Maybe we got this from watching cartoons as a kid, you know, when a cartoon character dies and then there's the wispy little soul kind of flits up, you know? We think that that's what's going to happen to us and we'll just be in heaven in this sort of flitty spiritual ethereal thing, not according to the Bible. Listen to what Jesus says next. What verse were we on? Verse 38. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Remember in Philippians, it said our resurrected bodies will be like his So get rid of that image in your mind of heaven being this wispy, ethereal thing. We're going to have real bodies. He says, look at my hands, look at my feet. 
I'm not just a spirit. I'm also a body, a new resurrected body. Verse 40, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. We return again to the hands and the feet. Why is Jesus showing his hands and his feet? We know the scene with doubting Thomas, right? Where Thomas wouldn't believe Jesus really rose from the dead unless he placed his hands in the wounds. He's showing them his healed scars from the cross. They knew that Jesus was pinned to the cross with nails. That that pins pierced his flesh. And in his new body, he must have shown the scar tissue from that. He's healed. He's fully alive. He's not dead anymore. But there he is before them. Look at my hands and my feet. This gives us a clue. We will carry into glory, we will carry into eternity new bodies, but we will carry the remnants or the scars of the sin and the woundedness and the brokenness of this world. But it will be healed. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We won't forget about everything that happened to our earthly bodies, but we will live in healing in our resurrected bodies. Verse 41, I love this phrase. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, they disbelieved for joy. I think this is another way of saying, this must be too good to be true. They disbelieved for joy. This is too wonderful for me to wrap my mind around. Jesus, you died. We know you were dead. You were buried. And yet here you are. They disbelieved for joy. I wonder if that's what it will be like for us when we are resurrected and we meet each other again in glory. We'll look at each other and we'll say, can this possibly be true? They disbelieved for joy and were marveling. And he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? (laughs) They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Ah, our resurrected bodies, when we enter the new heavens and the new earth, listen, I don't know how this works, but apparently we're still going to eat. We're still going to have interaction with the material world. It's a mystery to me. I don't understand it. Take it up with God when you see him in glory. I can't wrap my mind around it yet like the disciples I marvel at the wonder of it all. Maybe this is a surprise to you. Maybe you didn't know that when we say believe in the resurrection of the body that we're talking about our own. I won't have a show of hands, but this is probably a surprise to some. We think of heaven as only this ethereal place, but not so according to the Bible. And is this really what the Bible teaches? Is this really what we say when we say what we believe when we say the Apostles' Creed. I mean, maybe we understand that first line of these last three, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. We preach about that. We talk about that. We study about the forgiveness of sins often here at Stanwich Church. But how does it relate to the resurrection of the body and life everlasting? Well, we'll go back to Romans because it really gives us some help in understanding the through line, the continuity between the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Romans 5, which was also read for us earlier. Romans 5, beginning with verse 18. I'm going to read that whole paragraph again and try to help us understand. Romans 5, beginning with 18. Therefore, as 
one trespass. This is talking about Adam, what Adam and Eve brought into the world. Paul's forming this argument that sets this difference between what we gain in Adam and what we gain in Christ. Therefore, as one trespass, one sin, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. This is the key verse here. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let me try to explain this a little bit. If we only have what we've inherited from Adam and Eve, we only have the sin patterns in our life. And in Romans 3, it says that the wages of sin is death. If we go on sinning, if we go on with the consequences of our sin, it leads to death. Think about the sin patterns in your own life. If you go on pursuing them, it will lead to the death of relationships, the death maybe of your physical health, the spiritual, emotional, and mental life will, will just be sapped out of you if you just keep in those sin patterns. And ultimately, the, uh, the eternal death of hell is the consequence of all our sins. But if we gain what we receive in Christ on the cross, what we realize is that what Jesus did is he put an end to that consequence of our sins because he took that consequence which is death upon himself and in exchange in his resurrection he gives us life and i love this phrase sin reigns in death but grace reigns in christ what's reigning over your life are the sin patterns of your life reigning do you follow them are they your lord can you only do what satisfies them well it will lead to death or does grace reign? Is it your Lord? Is it your commander? Is it your authority? Saying, there but by the grace of God go I. I'm forgiven for all those sins. Because of what Jesus accomplished for me on the cross, that grace now reigns over my life. You know what it leads to, according to Romans? Righteousness and eternal life. You see the through line here. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life Everlasting. Once we realize, once we receive what happened for us on the cross is the life-giving forgiveness that Jesus has given us, we begin to live under the reign of grace and our lives become more righteous and we gain eternal life with God. That's a lot to take in. There's a lot of theology in there. So let me try to illustrate it with a story of a woman. There's this amazing, wonderful saintly, anointed woman. Maybe you've met her or heard her speak. Her name is Joni Erickson Tada. Anyone know this name? Joni Erickson Tada. For over 50 years now, she's been a um, quadriplegic. Um, She speaks, but she can't move her limbs. And she has this amazing anointing on her life to, to preach the gospel. They wheel her out on a wheelchair and she speaks at conferences or in churches. I've heard her speak. She has this profound anointing um, on her ministry. She's paint, she paints with a paintbrush in her mouth. Um, you should Google her. She's amazing. 
But she used to speak years ago about longing for glory, longing for heaven, because there she'd be able to dance. She'd get a new body, like we talk about in the Apostles' Creed, the resurrection of the body. And for years she said she couldn't wait to get that resurrected body so she could dance and praise God with her body. She would no longer be a quadriplegic. But she said something really profound and interesting more recently. She said this, Don't be thinking that for me in heaven, the big deal after I get to see Jesus is to get my new body. No, no, I want a glorified heart. I want a glorified heart that no longer twists the truth, resists God, looks for an escape, gets defeated by sin, becomes anxious or worrisome, manipulates my husband with precisely timed phrases. There were some knowing laughs among the women here on that one. What I love about this quote from Joni Erickson Tata is that she realized over time that what she originally was longing for in her resurrected body was to be able to dance and praise God, which is a wonderful hope. But she began to realize that the, the, the resurrection of the body will be thorough. We'll have glorified hearts. We won't have any of the complications from sin anymore. We will no longer resist God or twist the truth And what's really great about her thought here on this is that it's true what it says in Romans, that if grace reigns in our life, it leads to righteousness. That's righteousness that's coming out of her declaration there, and eternal life. When we get resurrected bodies, it will be thorough, mind, body, and spirit forever. As Aslan said, further up and further in. Further up and further in, the closer we get to Christ in glory, the more thorough our resurrection will be. So when we stand up week after week and declare the truth of the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. But there's one more word in the Apostles' Creed that I want to spend a few minutes on right now. It's the last word in the Apostles' Creed. Amen. I don't want to skip over that. We stand up here and we say the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and we talk about Jesus and then the Holy Spirit and the church and then the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, and then we together say, Amen. What does that mean? Well, it really means I agree with everything that just came out of my mouth. We stand in agreement with the truths we just declared. We say, amen, I believe it. Now, perhaps that's a little bit problematic for some, though, because there are some things that come out of our mouth in the Apostles' Creed that are really hard to understand. There are things too big, too marvelous, too mysterious to nail down in precise intellectual terms. Sometimes I hear people say, I I won't agree to something unless I fully understand it. Now that might make sense in your financial planning. (laughs) 
but not necessarily when we meet the God of the Bible. Because what, I think what we say when we say, I won't believe in it or agree with it until I fully understand it, I think what we're saying is we want to be in control. But look at the disciples when they met the resurrected Jesus. They disbelieved for joy and they marveled. They didn't understand it. How is this Jesus, the one who we saw die on the cross and was buried in the ground, how is he standing here before us? It's too marvelous for me to comprehend. And when we meet the God of the Apostles' Creed, when we meet the God of the Bible, we should have the same response. He's too marvelous. He's too mysterious. His ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We can't control him. We can't pin him down intellectually. And yet at the end of the Apostles' Creed, we say, amen. As if to say, I don't know if I understand everything that just came out of my mouth. Some of it is too marvelous for me, but amen. And we surrender a part of ourselves to the mystery. I want to go back to Narnia for a moment to really understand this amen piece, this surrender in the amen. Earlier in the story in, in Narnia, there's this girl named Jill, and she meets Aslan for the first time. Jill is a, on this long journey with her companions, and she gets separated from them. And she's all alone, and she's getting hungry and thirsty. Desperately so. And she's afraid. And she's realizing that she's dying of thirst. But she comes upon this small brook, this small stream before her with fresh, life-giving water. She's so glad to see the water. But suddenly she's terrified because right on the other side of the stream, she sees this mighty beast, this lion. And she's terrified because she sees his fangs and his big powerful paws and his claws. And she wonders, is this lion good? And she realizes that if she puts her face down in the water, she makes herself quite vulnerable before the lion. She doesn't know if she can trust him. So she says, the animals talk in Narnia, by the way. She says to the lion, she says, could you go away? because I need to drink from this water. And he says, no, this is my stream. And she has this decision to make because she's terrified. She doesn't know if he's good. She doesn't know if she should put her face down in the water, if she should kneel, as it were, before him and drink from the water, or if she should go away. And if we really meet the God of the Apostles' Creed, we might have a similar reaction. There are things too powerful for us to understand. I believe in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. If that doesn't terrify you, you haven't really understood the scope, the magnitude of how big God is. He's like a mighty lion before us. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, Born of the Virgin Mary? Is there anybody who fully understands that? Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. Did anybody in your life groups have a discussion around that? Did he descend to the dead or did he descend to hell and why does it matter? I hope you had good discussion around that. What's the answer? I don't know. <laughs> Keep talking about it. On the third day, he rose again. A lot of people have trouble believing in the actual resurrection. He ascended into heaven. It is seated at the right hand of the Father. 
He will come again to judge the living and the dead. He's the authority of the entire universe. It's a little bit like Jill standing before that stream of water, seeing all the power of the beast before her. If we're encountering the God of the Apostles' Creed, we're encountering the authority above all authorities. She asks him, are you going to swallow me up? And if we're encountering the God of the Bible... We might ask the same. He has the power to do so. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And when we say amen, it's like Jill kneeling down before that stream of water drinking. She says to him, could you go away? And he says, this is my stream. And so she says, well, okay, then I'm going to go find another stream. (laughs) To which he replies, there is no other stream. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jill kneeled down on that stream put her face in the water and drank and received life. And she learned that the lion is good, more powerful than she could possibly comprehend, but good. When we say the Apostles' Creed, we say that we need you, Jesus, the only source, the living water. And when we say amen, we kneel and surrender, saying, I don't comprehend it all, and I'm not even supposed to. But I believe that all the words that just came out of my mouth are true. And I believe that the great untamable beast, God himself, is good. So church, stand with me, if you would. Let us recite these words together. I hope you've learned a few new things about all these phrases in here. I was saying to somebody, the Apostles' Creed, it's kind of like um, a coat rack where each hook contains a whole bunch of bags and coats. Each word of the Apostles' Creed contains so much more. I hope we see that a little bit better together now, having studied it for these last few weeks. Let's say it together. When we get to that amen, surrender your heart to the things you don't understand and trust that God is good. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. To learn more about the mission and vision of Stanwich Church and how you can get involved, please visit stanwichchurch.org.